Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Now, this is a very exciting afternoon for us because it is welcome to Joanna and the Maestro to Mark Commode. Mark, hello. Hello. How lovely to see you both. And uh, you and I have met before very briefly on the on, on the set of Ab Fab, in which I did a two-second cameo, which delighted me enormously. I want you to do it again now. <laughs> <laughs> it, honestly, it was it was it was such a thrill. I was genu- genuinely genuinely delighted. We made a very there was a very crude joke, which we got maximum laughs out of, which I was very pleased about. That's all we care about is laughter at the end yeah, of the day. Exactly, um, Mark. We've got you here as the distinguished person you are, film critic in principle, but this, of course, is a music program. So I'm just longing to hear about your beginnings in music. Well. I can tell you exactly when my love of film music began because I do, you know, nowadays I'm I'm a film critic and I do a, a film music show every week on, on Scala. And when I first started doing it with Scala, I was asked, what was the first soundtrack you ever bought? And when I was a kid, I was born in 1963. So when I was a kid in the early 70s, there was a film in the cinemas called Rollerball. And it was uh, like a, a science fiction action adventure thing with James Kahn. And the soundtrack to Rollerball had two pieces of music that I heard for the first time in Rollerball. And one of them was, um, you know, I had no idea what that was. And I remember going, you know, what is that piece of music? And of course, it turns out I was listening to Bach's Toccata and Fugue in Dig Minor, which is a piece of organ music, which uses these kind of fast arpeggiated chords, gives them the opening of the movie this immense sense of gravitas. And then another was Albinoni's Adagio, which is now just incredibly famous because it's been used absolutely everywhere. My dad was a big music fan, big classical music fan, but big jazz music fan. And I said to him, there's this film, it's got these two pieces of music in it. And one of them goes, and the other one goes, he went, right, well, that's that and that's that. And So they bought me, my parents bought me the Rollerball soundtrack album because they thought this might be a good way of encouraging Mark to actually, you know, stop listening to pop music and the Rubettes and Alvin Stardust, who didn't work instantly. I still love the Rubettes and Alvin Stardust. So do I. But I remember buying that record and it had some other pieces as well. It had some sort of slightly more futuristic things on it. But I remember buying that and listening to it over and over again. My dad had a recording of Alstress Brachs Zarathustra because I was a fan of 2001. And I had said to him, can we buy the 2001 soundtrack album? He said, no, 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 you have to, you have to buy the original piece in its whole entirety. 
which I listened to the whole record. And of course, there's the first bit of it is the bit that's used in, in, in 2001. Yeah. And then after the Rollerball soundtrack, it was like, okay, no, I need to have the 2001 soundtrack. So I went to the record shop and bought the 2001 soundtrack, I think to the disappointment of my father. And then suddenly I had, you know, Viennese waltzes and, and Ligeti. I was never heard of Ligeti before until, until that. And that really started my love of film soundtrack albums, you know, just so it was pieces of classical music that already existed that that had featured in films and which I only knew because they were in the film and I could sing them to my dad and he would go, oh yeah, that's that. So that's really how it all began. That was, that kind of got me into classical music. It's interesting how much composed music is used on films to such extraordinary effect, isn't it? I can yes. remember things like Elvira Madigan, the second, I think it's Stevie, is it the second movement of, of the... Concerto number 21. Mozart's Concerto number 21. Yeah. But used in the film Elvira Madigan, which incidentally, Mark, is never shown. Is it because it had a suicide at the end, a joint suicide? You can't even find it online. I don't think that would be a reason for it not being shown. I mean, a lot of stuff just drops out of circulation yeah. because of copyright issues. Some of my, I mean, one of my favourite films of all time is a film called Jeremy, which in 1973 at the Cannes Film Festival won the award for best new feature and came out in the UK as a, the B feature with a Charles Bronson movie called Break Heart Pass. And it was unavailable for 40 years mm. just because it had slipped through the gaps in the catalogue. So, you know, that's probably the case. But in terms of the way in which certain pieces of music can affect films, I mean, certainly existing pieces of music, the thing that's always the big influence for me is, have both of you seen The Exorcist? Yes, Okay. No, I've never seen The Exorcist. Okay, but well, you've watched it so many times that yes. I think I have to now. I, I think everybody has well, to I think see it's it terrifying. <laughs> I, I well, won't watch it again. I'm, I was too scared. Well, here's the fascinating thing about The Exorcist, and I'm you know, sorry, I know with five minutes into the conversation I brought up The Exorcist, this is what I do. But <laughs> it's important because, again, in terms of its soundtrack being a kind of gateway drug to modern classical music or classical music, there was a soundtrack written for The Exorcist, written by Lalo Schifrin. Yeah. And William Friedkin, the director, had said, I want the sound to be like the feeling of a cold hand on the back of your neck. And Schifrin went, okay, fine. And he went away and he wrote what he thought was the cold hand on the back of the neck. What he actually wrote was a great big wall of sound, you know, big, scary horror theme. Yeah. Friedkin hated it so much that he allegedly took the quarter inch of the master and threw it out into the parking lot at Todd Ao and said, Ooh. get this out of my movie. Yeah. He also approached Bernard Herrmann, the you know, yeah. legendary yeah. film composer, and he said to Herrmann, you know, I'd like you to do the music. And there's two versions of the story. One of them is that Herrmann said, well, I've got a church organ in the UK that I use all the time and uh, I'd like to do that. And Friedkin said, I don't, no, that's not what I want. Herrmann's version of the story is that Freakin said to him, I want you to write a score better than the one you wrote for Citizen Kane. And Herman said, well, then you should have made a better movie, shouldn't you? <laughs> but, Excellent. But, but what happened after he threw out the Lally Schifrin score was that he just went to his record collection because Freakin is a real classical music enthusiast. He's directed operas and, and he 
pulled up pieces like Christoph Penderecki's Polymorphia. Mm-hmm. Polymorphia is something that begins really quietly and then builds through this, like it's like the sound of something scratching at the edge of your consciousness. It sounds like bed springs or it sounds like something rattling around in the loft. Mm-hmm. And it starts very quiet and then it gets, you know, louder and louder. And Night of the Electric Insects by George Crumb, which has got this kind of squealing violin sound that's used over a scene in which something appears on the body of the child. And essentially what he was doing was he was going to his record collection and going, I want that mood, I want that noise, I want that sound. And and he ended up just not having an original score, just using existing pieces. Of course, most famously, the piece of music that's used at the beginning, very briefly in the Exorcist, are the opening bars of Mike Oldfield's uh, Tubular Bells, which yeah. just turned 50 this year. Pretty frightening. This is all incredibly interesting. And even Schoenberg, way back in the early 20th century, wrote a piece which was called The Accompaniment to a Film. And it's a standalone, I don't know whether anybody's made a film to it, but all of those effects, that was becoming a part of classical music. Effects rather than the form of classical music. Yeah, and you and honestly, that's a library of really big names that you mentioned that Friedkin came up with. Who has Penderecki in 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 their library? That's that's intense. Yes, and of course, I think one of the reasons that Friedkin is the director that he is is because he listens obsessively to music, and he's 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 like he's got an open portal mind. He's really really fascinated by it. So after yeah. Exorcist, he made a film called Sorcerer. And the soundtrack for Sorcerer is by Tangerine Dream, largely. And it's mm-hmm. a, it's an ele- electronic score. And this is before electronica was, you know, really considered to be a legitimate form of film music. Nowadays, it, it you know, it, it's much more legitimate. If you take, for example, the standout theme, which is Betrayal, which is the Sorcerer theme, it's just this kind of pulsing synthesizer that goes... And it's very similar to the kind of one-note synthesized stuff that John Carpenter was doing on Halloween, a similar kind of, like a repetitive theme, and really creates a sense of tension at the the crucial moment in the journey to transport this terrifyingly dangerous cargo. If you go back to something like Forbidden Planet, which is Louis and B.B. Barron, the music that they made for Forbidden Planet 
was so experimental that they weren't allowed to call it music. They were actually mm. forbidden by the uh, musicians' unions in Hollywood from saying music. In the really? end of that film, it, yeah, it's, they're credited as electronic tonalities. So the beginning of Forbidden Planet, it's, it says electronic tonalities by Louis and B.B. Barron. And they're noises, they're sound effects. Nowadays, you'd think, well, okay, electronica, of course, that's a valid part of music. Back then, they were up in arms about it. They said, I'm sorry, that is not music. That's just a bunch of weird sounds. And if you go back, you find experimental musicians doing effectively what we now think of as sound effects. Mm -hmm. You know, way back before that, music was being used in certainly with sync sound with cinema. I mean, this is particularly interesting to me because I play in a band who accompany silent films. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we that we do, and we work with Neil Brand, Neil Brand, who is a pianist, a brilliant pianist, a brilliant film composer. And what he wanted to do was to recreate the way in which film soundtracks would originally have been played in the days of silence, but before music was specifically written for even for, for, for silent films, what would usually happen was that a film would ship up in the cinema and the local pickup band would just play along to provide, because of course silent cinema was never silent. And what Neil said was, look, let's just pick a couple of themes from around the time and we'll just improvise them. And I remember saying very clearly to Neil, well, look, it's one thing a piano player improvising because your left hand is connected to your right hand through your head. But if there's five of us improvising, it's just going to be a car crash. Mm. And Neil said, no, it won't, because what you do is you watch the film and you respond to the film. And I, I remember Al, who's our percussionist, said, well, does that mean sound effects? And Neil said, well, if you feel like hitting a drum when someone shoots a gun in, you know, in, in in one of the westerns that we're doing, you know, we did Hell's Hinges and we've done Beggars of Life and these yeah. are usually films with trains and hobos and, you know, shootouts and that sort of thing. Yes, okay, you can turn that into sound effects. And you realise when you're playing along to a film that part of what you're doing is a sort of sound effect. And for me, some of my favourite scores are scores that are indistinguishable from the effects soundtrack. The music track and the effects track are are the same. But this had been happening in classical music for quite some time. But I just think the remarkable thing is, as a kid who was interested in horror films, I had had the Exorcist soundtrack album before I saw The Exorcist, because The Exorcist was an ex-certificate film back when an ex-certificate film meant you couldn't go and see it unless you were actually, you know, because it was so terrifying. It was so terrifying. So I had a soundtrack album that had those composers on it, you know, way, way back. And it's a great introduction. Do soundtracks to films, do the albums sell well on the whole? Well, it's an interesting thing. The the soundtrack market has always been a little bit niche. There Mm. are certain, I mean, like, for example, one of the biggest selling soundtrack albums of all time is The Bodyguard, which is, it's, it's, it's a pop compilation album. So you get the jukebox compilation albums like... From when I was young, American Graffiti, there was a double album of American Graffiti. Car Wash was a big seller. Bodyguard went something like Triple Platinum. Famously, Nick Lowe, one of my favourite pop musicians, uh, ended up being able to pay his mortgage because he wrote What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding. And there's a cover version of it on that album. That album went Triple Platinum. He woke up one morning to find out his mortgage was paid off. Generally, classical soundtrack albums or instrumental soundtrack albums, they're not huge sellers. They're not. It it is a niche market. I remember that there used to be a a brilliant soundtrack shop on Dean Street in which you'd go in there, you'd go in there every Saturday and it was a very specific crowd of people. And, you know, there are are the specialist labels, like if you look at something like La La Land Records, who are pretty much the kind of leading specialist soundtrack. I think a lot of the stuff they do is like limited edition, you know, a few thousand pressings of something. But 
there was a time before video when if you saw a film and you loved it, the only way you could take the film home was to take the soundtrack album home. Yeah. You know, because you, could, you, you couldn't watch the film again unless you went back to the cinema. So I remember going to see The Sting and then yes. going to the record shop and buying a collection of recordings of uh, Scott Joplin tracks, which are all over the Sting soundtrack, because you'd play that and you'd think of the film. I mean, one of the very first albums I, I owned was for the full soundtrack to Dougal and the Blue Cat, which is, you know, Fenella Fielding and Eric Thompson, and, you know, it's music and spoken word. And you, people, a lot of people will have those Disney albums in which they were the Disney cartoons and the Disney songs, but they'd also be like a spoken word version of the story. It was kind of telling you the story of the album. But no, they're not huge sellers. I mean, certainly not in terms of, of you know, pop maybe, sales. Maybe some of the things like John Barry's music or, or um, you know, sort of huge, the theme music from, I'm thinking things like E.T. and Out of Africa and, you know, I'm leaping about a bit here, but huge favourite bits of music. I suppose starting, well, not starting, but one of the most famous being Gone with the Wind, Tara's theme and things like yeah, this, yeah. Where, where you just sort of would get it on an album with lots of other famous film themes. The, the compilation album thing was always great. There was, they used to get things like, you know, Jeff Love and his orchestra play the hits from the movies or the yeah. hits from TV. Yeah. Um, Woolworths used to do, a, a like it was a, a special Woolworth selection in which you had, you know, favourite horror film themes or favourite romantic movie themes. And then, you know, every house you went to would probably have a copy of a couple of soundtrack albums. I mean, when the Local Hero soundtrack album came out, I mean, it's by Mark Knopfler, so, you know, obviously it was in the the bigger selling. And I remember buying that soundtrack album. It's beautiful. All the way through, it's got this kind of fabulously atmospheric, very low-key pieces. There are also certain themes that recur all the way through, and they all come together in Going Home, which is now sort of known as the theme from Local Hero, which is... And I remember Mark Knopfler saying that what he was trying to do was to sort of reproduce something that had a bagpipe feel to it. He's using guitar, he's using synth, he's using this kind of rip-roaring saxophone, but it all harks back to the music he used at the Cayley, in which you hear a version of that theme beforehand. So it's all these elements brought together in, you know, what's a pop hit but also is something that has real kind of universal cultural appeal. And what it's doing at the end of that film is bringing together all the themes that he had during the drama in this one big uplifting anthem. talking to Bill Forsyth about it I love Local Hero and I, yeah. I love the soundtrack album and I I became quite good friends with Bill and I, I said to him once because he introduced me to Mark Knopfler and Mark Knopfler played me a bit of Local Hero and it was just a, you know on the guitar it was a joy and I said to Bill you know I love I just love the music to Local Hero and he said yeah I know it kind of breaks my heart and I said what the music he said no no what breaks my heart is how much you love it and I said why and he said because <laughs> Because as a filmmaker, I think that you use music when the film isn't working. And he said, as far as I'm concerned, every time you tell me that you love the music from Local Hero, what I hear is because the film doesn't work without it. Oh, no. No, I know, I know. know. But it's very Bill. You know, he's very kind of... 
very sort of do a thing. But soundtracks sell, and there is a solid market for it. But but you you are talking fundamentally, particularly nowadays, a, a, a somewhat more niche market than it would have been before. I mean, I have a vinyl copy of uh, Mika Levy's uh, soundtrack to Monos, and I have uh, vinyl copies of Mark Jenkins' soundtrack to Bait, which is basically boat noises and weird, you know... There's, I mean, actually, one of the best soundtrack albums, I mean, I suppose it did sell comparatively well, is the soundtrack for David Lynch's Eraserhead, a hmm. large section of which is just industrial noise. You know, it's just... It's mood, it's ambience, but it's not a million miles away from Penderecki featuring on the Exorcist soundtrack album. Mm-hmm. We watched mm-hmm. quite late last night Goodfellas, and oh, that yeah, yeah. phenomenal Scorsese soundtrack, which, of course, is just all the great songs of each particular period of time. And it was just devastating because once that music goes on, the original music, it mustn't be a version of it or just the tune or just the song. It must be the original recording of Be My Baby or whatever it is. I mean, just knockout. So the, the Goodfellas soundtrack and the Casino soundtrack, I mean, the Casino was a double CD. And it was a really big, you know, that was a big, solid success. That was kind of around the time that Tarantino had done Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And what they did was that they used the pop songs that, that, because famously, Quentin Tarantino uses, he uses his own record collection. So he will literally get his record collection and he will record the track off his vinyl because it has to be the original as he heard it. And then they would put dialogue clips in between. And Reservoir Dogs was quite a big deal with that, that Reservoir Dogs has a dialogue clip and then a track and then a dialogue clip and then a track. And it's the same with Pulp Fiction. I remember writing an article once for a newspaper about how the the dialogue clips had become like songs. Everyone knew them off by heart. You know, Zed's Dead Baby and all that stuff. People knew those as kind of songs. But originally, there was a history of soundtrack albums having spoken word excerpts you know, in between the tracks to kind of locate you again in terms of just like early education about music. When I was a kid, Clockwork Orange was, you weren't allowed to see it. It came out in the early 1970s. It was withdrawn from circulation in the UK because Stanley Kubrick wanted it banned in the UK. So it, well, you could not see Clockwork Orange in the UK for decades. In fact, it wasn't released theatrically until after Stanley Kubrick's death, at which point Warner Brothers lifted the ban. It was never banned by the, by the censors or anything. Why did Kubrick want to ban it? There was a lot of outcry about it. And the, the film developed a kind of, almost sort of mephitic air. There was a lot of allegations that it was responsible for leading people astray and for leading to, you know, crimes and this, that and the other. And a story that I have been told, whether this is absolutely true or not, I can't say, but that Stanley Kubrick's house received a package which was ticking and the package contained in it an orange, a clockwork orange that was ticking, of course, kind of missing the pun of the title, which is to do with... um, turning people into a clockwork orange. And he didn't like the publicity around. So after the first release of Clockwork Orange, after it had been in UK cinemas, it had done very well. He had Warner Brothers withdraw it from circulation and they were not able to play it in the UK and it was not available on video in the UK. If you were my age, the only way you could see Clockwork Orange if you hadn't seen it when it first came out was to go to France because it was playing constantly in a cinema in Paris or with the advent of video, get somebody to bring you in a Dutch video copy or a German video copy Mm. or a French video copy. But in the absence of the film itself, the soundtrack with all those incredible electronic tracks by Wendy Carlos was the thing that you had. So you had the novel by Anthony Burgess and you had the soundtrack album. And the soundtrack album was those, you know, absolutely brilliant arrangements of 
the William Tell Overture or the funeral of Queen Mary. Very experimental modern music. And, you know, you'd listen to this really futuristic sounding stuff and go, where does that come from? Who is that composer? Where, you know, and again, it, I keep using this phrase, but it's like film music is a gateway drug. So here's the question, Mark. Yeah. You know, gateway drug, which I completely see and I agree with, has it ever encouraged you, though, to go and find more Penderecki? Yes. Or, or it, it has, and more Ligeti, for goodness sake. Yeah, absolutely. Because weirdly enough, like one of my favourite contemporary composers is Johnny Greenwood. Well, of course, Johnny Greenwood's, you know, relationship with Penderecki is very, very well documented. And, you know, he's there's a really, really big you know, kind of fusion of stuff there. And I love Johnny Greenwood's music. And I remember talking to Johnny Greenwood about Phantom Thread and him, you know, talking about Richard Adensall and all the people who he, he was referring back to. And then famously with There Will Be Blood, which of course should have won an Academy Award, should, but didn't even get nominated for an Academy Award because mm. part of it had been used previously in a performance, in a you know, BBC performance. What happened was effectively the Academy accused Johnny Greenwood of plagiarising himself. Oh, stop it. And that, yeah, I know. So then they, so then he, you know, he wasn't even Oscar nominated for that. But I remember hearing bits of There Will Be Blood by Johnny Greenwood and thinking that is clearly written by somebody who loves Penderecki. I mean, if you take Open Spaces, which is I mean, one of the first pieces of music you hear in the film, we get these expansive cellos and stringed instruments, contrast, light and darkness in exactly the same way that Penderecki does in his orchestral pieces. You can hear that influence in Johnny Greenwood's There Will Be Blood. My son, who's now in his 20s, he has a very, very open mind for experimental music. You know, atonal squonk fest isn't in it. I mean, he will listen squonk. to stuff that... Come on, yeah, squonk. He, I mean, what? Squonky. An atonal squonk fest is a piece of music when you literally go, um, is that music or is that somebody demolishing the house next door? I'm really ah. not quite sure, you know. But, you know, I was able to keep up with conversations with him at some points because he would play me music and I go, ah, well, that, actually is this. So I'm, one of the things I'm proudest of is I introduced my son to Penderecki. <laughs> and for a brief moment, he thought his father was cool. And it lasted about five seconds. And then Mark, I'll, I'll trade you squonk for what we uh, started calling squeaky gate. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, it's, it's a genre. Squeaky gate. I am really fascinated by the way in which music that doesn't sound like music is really the cutting edge of composition. I mean, to give this a sort of a pop edge, there's a Captain Beefheart album called Trout Mask Replica. And I have listened to Trout Mask Replica about 25 times. I think I understood it once. The other 24 times, I could not get it at all. I just couldn't get it. But I know that there's something in there, and I know that if you pursue it, it will, you know, 
reveal it will, itself sort of yeah. somehow. Yeah. What do you think then that you're doing when you listen to stuff over and over again? What are you trying to listen for? What are you looking for? This is I'm, a terribly important question. I'm honestly trying to understand it. And the best analogy I can give you is when I was younger and I, you had know, a pop act that you loved, right? Mm. And you had the, the favourite album by them. So let's take, for example, Queen, okay? Yeah. Love Queen. First album, great. Second album, great. First one that everyone really kind of got on board with was Sheer Heart Attack. So first time I ever listened to Sheer Heart Attack, I remember thinking... I, I don't know what's going on. I, I, don't, I don't... And then you listen to it again, and then you start to know the tunes, and then you listen to it again. By the third or fourth time, you think this is great. And then, but then you know, by the time you get to Night at the Opera, you've learned how to listen to a Queen album. Mm. If you listen to the beginning of Side 2 of Sheer Heart Attack without having any idea who Queen are, you think, what on earth is this noise? It's, this is just bizarre. And I think that everyone understands that an album that you love is probably an album that the first time around you heard it, you didn't absolutely love. You, you were kind of a bit, I don't know, and you have to get to know it. Well, as far as classical music, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure about the distinction, but as far as classical music is concerned, sometimes you, you have to work with it. You have to meet it halfway. I mean, it's, it's a similar thing with jazz. I play rockabilly, which is 4-4. Four, four. You know, it's boom, 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 E, A, D. Every now and then, somebody will be adventurous and play C minor. But it's very, very basic. And what I like about it is that there are a million ways in which you can construct a song based on E, A, D, okay? And the genius of blues music is that it's all to do with the tiny little widgety difference in each song that makes each song different because yeah. the, the chassis that it's bolted to is the same. If I listen to freeform jazz, I struggle. I really struggle. But if I really, really, really give it a go, then I start to hear the thing. You know, yeah. there's the old joke about, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, a preformed jazz musician will go, here's one you know. Yeah, and you uh, go, absolutely. I have literally no idea what you were playing, <laughs> yeah. but I appreciate that the problem is my ear, not them. And so that's what I mean about you have to work well, You at speak it. about a chassis. I'm so interested in trying to encourage people to look at some of the 20th century music and then contemporary classical music in a way where they're just looking for the shape that the composer had in their mind. So it's about shape and satisfaction in seeing, seeing a whole. Do, do you see what I'm getting I, at? I do. And weirdly enough, kind of one of the things that that ties into is you know, what gets called minimalist music. So Philip Glass, mm. with Philip Glass, that cyclical thing about, you know, a lot of people saw Koenis Katsi and a lot of people bought the Koenis Katsi album. I remember going to see Achnaten, the opera, and I know nothing about what I know about opera would not fill the back of a postage stamp. Mm. I have seen Achnaten four times, wow. performed four times. And I love it. And one of the reasons I love it is from the very opening, you know, I know where I am. I, okay, I know because that repetitive structure works for me. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for me. And what that means is it can lead me off in, you know, other areas because I'm, I'm, already, I'm already on board.
And finally, you play the bass. Badly. Yeah, but, but no, you play, mate. You play. Yeah. That's the thing. I play a number of musical instruments very badly. Did you pick them all up? Um, because you were interested in them and you thought, I'm going to do this, and you taught yourself? Yeah, I, was, I, I, I built an electric guitar when I was a teenager, built it completely from scratch in practical design. Um, there was a magazine called Everyday Electronics. It showed you how to do it. It was meant to take two months, ended up taking two years. I think my practical design teacher wanted to kill me, but I built an electric guitar from scratch. I had piano lessons up to grade two, and then I gave up. I was taught the French horn, and I failed my grade three French horn exam. So my parents decided there was no point in attempting to teach me to play anything. But I was always encouraged to have a go and to not worry about damaging the instruments. And so I can play very badly a double bass, French horn, bagpipes, uh, theremin, (laughs) piano, all very, very badly. Don't, but I, look, look but, drop, drop that, Mark. Drop no, no, but it's true. Badly. But, but, yeah. I, but no, no, I, no, I think no, no, the whole point is it doesn't matter. Have a go. Have yes, a go. You know. That's the that's the point. And you, by golly, you've done you've had more goes than anyone else, frankly. Yes, <laughs> not everyone has always been pleased about it. It's like my my favourite joke. The definition of a gentleman is someone who can play the bagpipes but doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, it's been such a pleasure because you can talk about music and you did. So thank you so much for coming on to Joanna and the Maestro. Thank you for having me and tune into. Scala Radio, Saturday, one till three, regular (laughs) film music show, all of this, plus listenable tunes. (laughs) We'll be there. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. You've been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle, burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and Ben Tullow. And mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills. Our production manager is Sarah Anderson. And our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music. Toccata and Fugue in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach, performed by William McVicker. The record label was Sony Music Entertainment. The Exorcist, Rejected Score, Suite, by Lalu Schifrin. The conductor was Lalu Schifrin, and the record label was Blowout Recordings. Polymorphia, by Christoph Penderecki, performed by the Auxo Orchestra and Christoph Penderecki. The publisher was Shot Music Limited and the record label was Nonsuch Records, Inc., a Warner Music Group company. Night of the Electric Insects by George Crumb, performed by the National Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Leonard Slatkin. The publisher was Peters C.F. Limited Co., and the record label was Warner Records, Inc., and the record label was Warner Records. Part 1. Introduction written by Mike Oldfield, and performed by Mike Oldfield. The publisher was BMG Rights Management. The record label was 2003 Warner Music Spain. Going Home, written by Mark Knopfler, and performed by Mark Knopfler. The publisher was Universal Music Publishing Limited, and the record label was 1983 Mercury Records Limited. Funeral of Queen Mary 
composed by W. Carlos and R. Elkind, and performed by the New Movie Orchestra. The publisher was Westminster Music Limited, and the record label was Big Eye Records. Open Spaces, composed by Johnny Greenwood and performed by Johnny Greenwood. The publisher was Warner Chappelle North America Limited, and the record label was Nonsuch Records. Prelude, Refrain, Verse 1, Verse 2. Written by Philip Glass and performed by Zachary James, Karen Kemensek, and the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. The publisher was Chester Music, and the record label was the Metropolitan Opera. <laughs>